Well, good morning. Um, over the past few weeks, we have been looking uh, at Luke chapter 1. So if you have a Bible and you're going to open it, uh, open it to Luke 1. That will be where we will spend some time this morning. And uh, this is the scriptural historical account of the birth and the coming of Jesus uh, that Luke took. And uh, as I've read this account, many times over the past week, sometimes what I do, if I know I'm going to be preaching on a certain text, we'll just read it and reread it and reread it and reread it. And um, just kind of trust that over the time of reading it, that the Lord's going to kind of start, I don't know, it's like stirring a pot or something. Things are going to start to kind of come up to the surface. Um, as the Lord stirred the pot, and as I prayed about what does the Lord want for us as a community to hear this morning, there was one verse that kind of came up above everything else. And uh, it comes in verse 37. So 137 is going to kind of be our push-off point this morning. Um, and it comes in the context of the annunciation from Gabriel, the statement, Gabriel, angel of the Lord, has come to declare something that is true that is about to occur in the life of Mary. He's already come to Zechariah uh, and done the same thing. And uh, so it comes in the context of this annunciation of Gabriel to Mary about the coming of Jesus and her role in all of this. Uh, and the statement is this. So chapter 1, verse 37, For nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. What I want us to camp out in for a few minutes is this statement. And this statement should, if your minds are churning this morning, if they're not, kind of give yourself one of those, uh, this should churn the pot for us. This should cause us and bring to the surface some pretty serious questions for you and for me. Um, and if you sense where this is heading, this is not going to be your typical <laughs> Christmas sermon hang garland on the tree. Uh, this one has kind of really brought me to a screeching halt this week. Do you, do I, believe in the impossible? What does it mean for something to actually be impossible? Like, isn't it kind of like a uh, oxymoron, what Gabriel's saying, nothing is impossible? Isn't that really just basically saying, what's possible is anything with God? Impossibility is not a category that applies to God. It's a category that applies to you and I. It is impossible for me to dunk a basketball. I know many of you see me and think he's short, but relatively athletic. Um, I'm kidding. I mean, it just wouldn't happen, you know? Like, I am way too short, unless I'm Spud Webb, which I dreamt about being as a child. Uh... To do it, it's an impossibility, but what Gabriel is saying here is, is important. He's saying the categories that you apply to yourself, that are applied to us, those things don't exist for God. He exists outside of the categories, outside of these limitations. Is God doing the impossible in your life this morning? He was about to do it in Mary's life. He was doing it in Mary's life. He was about to do it, the tangible aspects of it, in Zachariah's life. He was already doing it. 
How would you even know if God was doing the impossible in your life right now? How would you know? Although I would wager that most of us, if you've been around church at all, and probably spent any time in Scripture, that sentence is probably not something that's unfamiliar to you. You would have some cognitive familiarity. Okay, I've read that before. Yeah, nothing's impossible with God. But I'm, I'm here this morning saying to you that for myself, for us as a people, I literally believe we have about this much functional trust of that statement. This much practical trust of that truth. Where the real life happens when we leave these doors. We don't live in the reality the truth that with God, the things that seem impossible to you and I are absolutely possible. The holidays, for many of us, can feel, emphasis on the word feel, impossible. The pain that surfaces, the broken relationships. How about hopes that are going unmet or have gone unmet for years. Even if things are relatively well in your family. I remember thinking at, at Thanksgiving, just seeing the aging of my parents and knowing that this, what we're experiencing, it's not gonna last. It's gonna happen. My folks are gonna die. It was deeply painful. It can feel impossible what these next two weeks hold when you get past the presents and the garland and the 20 pounds I'm probably going to put on. <laughs> it can feel impossible. Maybe the holidays remind you of death, the person who's not there. How about the separation between the people you're with, that you're in room with people who maybe feel like total strangers to you, that the people in this room actually may feel closer to you than your own family. How about being with those people and still feeling the groan of the fact that as well as you know me and as I know you, each heart, as Proverbs says, knows its own bitterness and no one else can share in its joy. That there are limits. There's impossibilities between us that don't exist for the Lord. It's into that impossibility over these next two weeks. Over this next year, I don't know whether you spend a lot of time thinking about the new year and all the things that you say you're going to do that you won't follow through on. Uh, it's into that impossibility that this statement rings and hear it. Nothing is impossible with God. It's a catchphrase for Christian ministries. Nothing is impossible with God. Let's print that on some oversized t-shirt and do a mission strip. But oftentimes, the living reality, my own true bottom line, is this. I ultimately make what happens happen in my life. I'm the one who's responsible here. I'm the one. It's what I bring to the table that's going to make this happen. If the impossible is going to happen in my life, I have to make it happen. And guess what? We all know we can't do it, don't we? It kills us. The groan, the ache of the reality that we don't have any ability to make the impossible happen. And so what we do is we give up on it. I gave up on the impossible a long time ago. 
In fact, here's what we've done with impossibility. <laughs> I have made it the goal of my life just to do something that seems or feels impossible for you all so that you would worship me. Isn't that really the truth? I'm just gonna try to do something that looks impossible to everyone else so that they think something's possible for me that's not true for them. What a small view of the impossible. What a small view of what God's stepping in to do in our lives. This week, I'm ending a two-week run of my entire family being sick. I have two sons. Hudson is two and a half. Parker is six months. My wife is not that young. Uh, She's 20, geez, I should know this, 28. Uh, She's been sick. They've been sick. And Hudson was the first, and then Parker followed, and Emily was kind of throughout. She's coughing uncontrollably. They have fevers. They have snot flowing out of every cavity. They've got vomiting all over you. And Hudson and Parker seemed like they were getting better. I won't go into too many more just disgusting descriptions. <laughs> the, the actual mucus, I'm sorry. Uh, Friday night, we had some friends over. Great meal, some wine. I'm thinking the boys are going to sleep tonight. I'm going to sleep tonight. I haven't slept in weeks. <laughs> uh, Hudson gets 105 fever. Remember, he was the one that was first sick and now he's sick again and Emily's coughing like every 30 milliseconds (laughs) uncontrollably Hudson is screaming puking and has a fever he doesn't know what's going on Parker's in his room going crazy and um, it felt impossible and let me tell you what felt impossible What didn't feel impossible to me was that the Lord could heal Hudson of his fever or that he could heal Emily of her cough or somehow allow Parker to go back to sleep on his own somehow. That isn't what felt impossible. What felt impossible for me was to not be so angry. So angry that I wanted to put my fists through the walls of my house and despise the fact that one more night at 1 a.m., I'm up doing something for my family. It's one more night of no sleep. It's one more night of, oh, hey, it's Friday, and you got to preach on Sunday, and it's one more night. That felt impossible. It felt impossible to live in the functional trust, the practical trust of Romans 8.28, which you hear out of this pulpit all the time. And we know that in all things, everything, 1 a.m., vomiting fever things. God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. It felt impossible to trust the truth of that so deeply that I would even have peace, that I would be peaceful with my wife and my child, that I would be gentle, that I would be humble, that I would be selfless, in the midst of feeling angry, tired, deeply discouraged. What I'm talking about, and what we're going to talk about the rest of this morning, what I think is going on in the life of Mary and Zechariah is this. It's what I would describe as being able in the moment, at the 1 a.m., rubber meets the road of life, to separate what I feel from who I am. And to live by faith 
in who I am rather than what I feel. Now, I'm going to dance around in this, and it's going to be maybe confusing, and some of this got written under the influence of the Holy Spirit. All of it did, and NyQuil. Um, so hang with me on this. The, in the moment, the ability to separate what I feel from who I am and to live by faith in who I am now, not necessarily what I feel. You see the tension this creates. Our generation, and I know everybody in this room isn't in my generation, but most of us are within a 40-year range of one another. We believe we are what we feel. I don't have a clue how to stop being what I feel. So let's look at this passage, some of the surrounding story, and see if we can make some sense of this. Maybe how this separation of what I feel and who I am is possible. Hear me say this. It's possible and it's necessary for us to experience the impossible that God is doing in our lives. Not just that he wants to do, that he's actually doing, that's set in motion. Earlier in the chapter of Luke, Gabriel visits both Zachariah and Mary to tell them both of the truth of what's about to happen to them. So look at this, and this is Luke 1.13. But the angel said to him, this is to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are given the name John, and he will be the joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or ferment a drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of our fathers, <coughs> to turn the hearts of, of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous and make ready a people prepared for the Lord. For Zechariah, his prayer had been heard. These people were old people, y'all. These people were not people who have babies. Way older than baby age. People who had been barren, who had been seen as cursed in some senses, to be barren as a woman in that day and age. And Elizabeth is going to have a son, and not just anybody. It's going to be John the Baptist. For Mary, Luke 1.30, but an angel says to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and called the Son of the Most High God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. For Mary, she would be overcome, overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. She would become pregnant. She would bear a son whose name was to be Jesus who would be the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. Now let's talk about these two characters Two very different people. You got a priest, someone who would have been pretty intimately involved in the life of the church, and you have what scholars think at least a 14, maybe 12, somewhere between 12 and 14 year old girl. <laughs> Spectrum here is what I'm talking about. Zechariah was a priest. This man would have been intimately familiar with the Old Testament, probably would have known most of it by memory. He would have been intimately familiar with the prophetic passages concerning the coming Messiah. Surely, I mean, surely, 
a guy who knew the story of Abraham and Isaac, who basically, and we're going to see here in a second, says the same thing that was said in Genesis 17 by Abraham when God told Abraham the same thing. Surely, his response to Gabriel would have been excitement and faith, right? I mean, he wanted a son, right? He'd been praying for a son, right? And he's not only going to get a son, he's going to get the one that is going to be the precursor to the Messiah, the guy who is laying the tracks. John the Baptist, no greater man born of woman than him. Jesus himself says it. Get fired up, hey? Say, get fired up. <laughs> Zechariah, come on. Hear me say this. Gabriel has come to say to Zechariah, this is who you are. You are to be the son, or you are to be the father of John the Baptist. You were chosen by casting a lot, which basically means I chose you to be this. This is an act of my grace in your life. This is who you are. Mary, by all accounts, a teenager, unwed, yet by God's grace, he chooses to set his favor on Mary. He's going to bless her life immeasurably by making her the mother of Jesus, the coming Messiah, the Savior of the world. Gabriel is coming to Mary and saying, this is who you are. This is who you be. You be the mother of Jesus because God decided that's who you are. You are the one who is highly favored and the Lord is with. He has set his affection on you. He has set this purpose for you since the foundations of the world. Well, let's, let's, we've just talked about who they are. Let's talk about what they feel. One sentence from Zechariah, gripped with fear. Gripped, controlled. Fear was the medium. It was what he felt. What about Mary? She was greatly troubled. Slightly different with Mary. We're not even going to talk about the nuance here. Greatly troubled with wonder. She was greatly troubled. Do you see the difference? This is who you are. This is what you feel. Both to Mary and Zechariah, these words come from Gabriel. Do not be afraid. The impossible was about to happen. An old man and a barren woman were going to have a son. A virgin was going to become pregnant and give birth to the Messiah. The Lord had decided it. He had willed it. He had sent an angel to deliver the message. This is happening. This is about to go down. Nowhere in Gabriel's explanation of what was going to occur in both of these two's lives did he speak to them at all of anything that they would do to make this impossible reality come about. He didn't say, well, yeah, the Lord's going to do this, and then this is the part of it that you're going to have to do to make this impossibility become reality. Yet I look at the response of both of them, greatly disturbed, gripped with fear, greatly troubled. And it's humbling to see how much I can relate and see myself in these two. Listen to the response of these two. After gripped with fear, they get a, man, they get a great, they get things that we would die for, you know? 
Everybody says, I don't want to know God's will for my life. He basically tells them, like, this is exactly what's about to happen for you. And what is their response? Zechariah, how can I be sure of this? I am old and my wife is well along in years. Mary's response, how can this be? How is this possible? I'm a virgin. Our feelings, follow me here, our feelings of fear always invite us to turn inward. To take stock, to do inventory. Do I have what it takes to make this impossible thing happen? I was talking with Randy earlier this week and he said it well. He said, we keep evaluating the promises of God based on our own abilities. Evaluating for us is a primarily emotive thing. I keep evaluating. When you ask somebody, what was your evaluation of that? First thing they'll talk about is their feelings. Well, I felt like it went well. I didn't really feel like it went well. Evaluation, which is primarily done with our feelings, not truth, keeps us, we take that evaluation, we keep evaluating the promises of God. What is true? This is what is going to happen based on our own abilities. And let's just be honest, our abilities, that, that, that is like a transcending word. It, it, it's synonymous with one word for our culture, your identity. You identify yourself with your abilities. Whatever I can do, whatever I'm good at, whatever people thank me for or pay me for or think I'm better at every, than I, everyone else is at those things, that's who I am. So the real challenge here this morning, this is what I'm, I'm racing us towards, I hope, or maybe I'm moving like a snail, I don't know, is what does your ability have to do with the impossible? Because my ability, it often flip-flops. I'm like a boat at sea. It goes in between being rooted in the truth, my identity being rooted in the truth, and then my identity being rooted in all this feeling stuff that I've been talking about. When we are at the place where we are perpetually, I'm talking about reoccurring often, asking the how questions, I don't see how this can happen. I don't know how this could work out. I don't know how to do this. You can be pretty certain that your feelings of fear have become your functional trust, which means you which means I have become my functional trust. Which means my functional trust is not in the Lord. Which, friends, should be the scariest thing of all to us. That's what we should be terrified of. That's what should grip us with fear, is that you actually put your hope in you. Isn't that the beauty of this story? That he sent his son, that I could place my entire hope on that? that I could stop being a person who puts my hope in myself, getting so freaking tired of trying to do the impossible that I know is impossible. Isn't that the worst feeling of all? Waking up trying to do something you know you'll fail at every day. How exhausting. How depressing. You see, fear and hope are two sides of the same coin. Whatever you're afraid of, that is what you're putting your hope in. If you're afraid of where the next paycheck's coming from, you're putting your hope in that money. If you're afraid of how this relationship is gonna work out, 
you're putting your hope in that relationship working out. Gabriel steps into it. Steps into all the humanity of it, all the messiness of it, all the feelings of uncertainty that Zachariah and Mary are having. And he says this, do not be afraid. Not, and follow me here, I don't think this is just semantical dancing. Do not feel afraid. He says don't be afraid. So the first thing I want us to take away is for us to begin to step into the impossible things that the Lord is doing in and around us. We must cease to be people who are afraid. People who are afraid who are beers of being afraid. Not feelers, not people who feel afraid, people who are afraid, people who be afraid. Let me see if I can explain this. How is this possible? Fear must cease to be, this is kind of another explanation, this, cease to be the place from which we function and live perpetually. The place from which we move and groove, make our decisions, live our lives. What's the difference between being afraid and feeling afraid? I challenge us to think on these terms. Being afraid is its core. It's at the core of who you are if you be something. It's foundational. You can tell if it's who you are if it's consistent, if it's your consistent, perpetual, active state. (laughs) The place out of which you live all the time. I am afraid. That's who I, I am. The definition of being, just in the dictionary, is helpful. The fact of existing. I exist in fear. It's my substance. It's my nature. That's what it means to be something. It's at the very core. Feeling afraid? It's partial. It's valid to feel. It's serious, but it's subjective. It must be measured up against some objective, absolute truth in order to determine what to do with it. Okay, I feel afraid. Am I going to be afraid? I feel insecure. Am I going to be insecure? I feel unworthy. Am I going to be unworthy? I don't feel like a son or a daughter of God. Am I, am I going to be not a son and daughter of God? I don't feel loved. Am I going to be unloved? What do I do with it? What do I do with my feelings? How do I determine what to do with them, whether I act on them or not? Some of you have been repelling. Anybody been repelling? You ever read the side of a carabiner? It's like a bunch of like math equations that basically tell you this thing could hold like 18 Chevy Silverados or this rope could like lift an entire NFL football stadium. And I don't know, you know what I'm saying? Like it's just crazy, these like things. Uh, And you know, I'm like what, 150, 160? I'm somewhere (laughs) under... 200, and that will fluctuate over the next few weeks. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous, right? I mean, this rope, these, this harness, these carabiners, these things, you add them all together, the combined strength of these things, is, it's innumerable. It's, it's impossible for my finite mind to fashion itself in a, in a way to understand just how much weight these things could hold. Yet, when I put the harness on and I get all this stuff on and the guy tells me, you just, you just sit back into it, you just lean off the 80-foot cliff, I can feel afraid. I can feel like this rope that could lift the weight of the rock wall I'm about to go down. I can feel like it might not hold me, but it, the truth is, is it's going to hold me. The harness is going to hold me. The carabiner is going to hold me. It's stronger than my fear. Being afraid is standing on the edge of that cliff and saying, I don't care. I know what you've told me about the strength of all this. I don't care. My fear is stronger than all of that. And that's what a lot of us do. I know the things that the Lord's calling me to do. I, I feel afraid of those things. And guess what? My fear is more, it's more, it's stronger, it's bigger than all the truth of the gospel. And so, you know what? Keep all the gear. I won't even pick it up and use it. The armor of God that Ephesians talks about that we'll get to. I feel afraid when I repel. My butt tingles when I'm up on heights. I mean, I feel it in my butt. Just this tingly sensation. I don't want to do it. But you do it, and what happens when you do it? You, you, you functionally trust the strength. And then something happens after you do it enough. Is, is your fear starts to transform into something. It starts to transform into hope. It starts to transform into joy. You're not afraid of the, fe the tingles anymore. Those tingles don't dictate what you do because you live in the trust of the strength of something outside of yourself. So point two, how is it possible to stop being afraid? And this is hard for us. We allow fear to drive us to the truth. And the truth does what I just explained. It does something to that fear. It converts it. It transforms it. It places it back where it belongs on God and not on us. So let's talk about, for a second, the role of the truth in all of this. How we would stop possibly being people who are afraid all the time rather than just feel it. The first thing is this. Perfect love drives out all fear. John, 1 John 4.18, there's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. Would you let yourself, this season, be immersed in the reality, in the truth, that it was because of his perfect love for you and I that he did this? And that when we experience that perfect love, it literally drives our fear out. His love drives our fear out. I don't drive my fear out. He does. His love does. The second thing is that truth accompanied with his love, drives it out. It destroys it. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. What weapons are we talking about? Ephesians 6. Randy talked about them last week to us. The belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, sword of the spirit, helmet of salvation. 
These are our weapons. They are our protection. They are the things that keep us from being what we feel. We take these weapons and we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, that sets itself up against the truth. My feelings oftentimes are set up against the truth, aren't they? I feel differently than the truth all the time. And we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. What does it mean to make a thought obedient to Christ? 9.13 of 2 Corinthians. Men will praise God because of your obedience, your actions, your doing, your being. Who you are is what you do. that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. What do you confess is true? The truth is the thing that we pick up. The truth is the thing that demolishes arguments. The truth is the thing that demolishes the pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. The truth is the thing that allows me to stop being what I feel. John 8.32 says it like this, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Not free from ever being, or sorry, not free from ever feeling afraid. We're not those who are free from ever feeling afraid, but free from those who are afraid, who live in perpetual fear, whose fear dictates all of our actions. John 6.33, sorry, 16.33, says it like this, I've told you these things so that you may have peace. I've told you the truth so that you could have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Whoa, what is that? Peace, trouble? How do those things coexist? Trouble, feelings. You will have trouble. Things will be hard. But take heart, I have overcome the world. My truth has overcome your feelings about your world, your life, and what you think is possible. You begin to transcend, guys and gals. Hear the Lord's words to us. I have overcome. Nothing is impossible with me. You will have trouble. You will feel sad. You will feel angry. You will feel lonely. You will feel depressed. Many of these things will be companions with you for the rest of your life. But there is joy. There is truth. There is peace. There is satisfaction to be had outside of your feelings and your circumstances. In fact, those things which are rooted in a truth actually can happen regardless of if those circumstances ever change. That's what's being said to Mary when he's saying, don't be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. You may feel afraid, but you don't have to be. You have to live in that fear. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Always. Seriously? Always? And again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness, what? Be evident. Be gentle. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious. Not do not feel anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't live in anxiety but in everything by prayer and petition. With thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard 
your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He does the guarding. He does the defending. His truth does the demolishing. So what do we do with all this? First thing is this, and this is a very, very difficult thing that I'm about to say. Stop trying to stop feeling afraid. Stop trying to stop feeling afraid. Don't waste your time. You ever try to stay in love with somebody that you didn't love? Eesh, makes a mess out of things, right? Atomic bomb, 10 months later, it's coming out of the blue. What, you don't feel the same way about me anymore? No, actually, I've been trying for the last nine months to make myself feel something. I've been trying to feel something. Stop trying to stop feeling afraid. If you feel afraid, acknowledge it. I feel afraid. You are powerless to stop feeling that. And guess what? God isn't asking you to stop feeling anything. Whoa. You should let, this should be like an applause moment in your head. I don't have to stop feeling things? No. Just stop being them. Stop being what you feel. Let your fear drive you to the truth. Stop letting your fear be the place from which you live. How? And this sounds crazy. I know it does. But right, we're talking about the impossible, right? Things that sound crazy. Let that feeling of fear, which is actually a gift from the Lord, if you could actually stop for a second and believe that. Here's why it's a gift, because it shows you the truth of where your functional trust is in yourself. It's a gift. Let that fear drive you to the truth. So let me do this for us right now. I'm gonna take a minute and do this. I'm gonna tell you the truth. That, that you and I would be people who are not afraid, even though we may feel afraid many moments over the next year. Hear the truth. Christ came for the needy. This is why Jesus came, guys. He came for the humble. He came for the sick. He came for the lonely. And he came to show us mercy. Matthew 9, 12. Christ came to set us free and to redeem us. Galatians 5, 1. Zachariah's song in Luke 1. Christ came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. To justify us. To reconcile us. To save us. Romans 5, 6. Christ came to make you and I into sons and daughters, into heirs. That is who we are. I don't care what I feel. He has willed it. He decided it. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Christ came because of his great love for us. Ephesians 2, 4. I could do this for days. I could stand up here and make a huge freaking list and put scripture next to all of it, put truth next to all of it. But for our purposes today, hear this last one. Christ came so we would no longer live in fear. Zechariah's song 174 of Luke 1, verse 74. Christ came to rescue us from the hands of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness. Words that are synonymous with truth. Holiness, righteousness. Enable us to serve him, the purpose of our lives, guys, without fear, 
in truth? What feels impossible to you right now? What is it? Is it going home for Christmas? Is it doing this afternoon and whatever that holds? What feels impossible to you right now? Would you let perfect love come out, come in and drive out that fear? Would you let truth destroy that fear and transform it into hope? That we would be people, you and I, who are not afraid, even though we feel afraid. That we would be people who live by grace and faith, lives of holiness and righteousness, lives that are based on the truth, not on our feelings, lives of truth. Let's pray. Lord, it just seems impossible. And you know what? Frankly, it is. It is impossible for me to stop being what I feel. And I take a lot of courage and a lot of comfort in the fact that a priest and a little girl thousands of years ago displayed the same thing. And yet, your purpose for their lives happened. Your mercy, your grace was poured out on them. And I ask that you would do the same for us, Jesus. I pray that your truth would come in and destroy the fear that oftentimes marks and defines our lives. That we would become people who be what we believe is true versus what we feel day in and day out. What an impossible thing to do. But that's what you do, Lord. You do the impossible. So do it with us. Please do it with us. I'm so tired of trying to do it. We love you. In your name, amen.